Well, we are continuing in our uh, series for the life of the world. It's been about seven weeks now, and we've covered topics like seeking the welfare of our city. Actually, the, serv- the series has been meant to address the question, what is our faith for, and what does it mean that we are in the world but not of it? That's like Christianese. I feel like I've heard that for years, and you probably have too. I don't know that most of us even really know what that means. And so this series has been meant to kind of unpack what what that means, what that idea is all about, that Christians are in the world, but we're not of the world. And it's also uh, intended to answer the question, what is our faith for, pushing against this notion that our faith is simply so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's a real reductionist version of the gospel and the Bible as a whole. Uh, The story found in Scripture is telling this grand story of God's plan for all of the ages. We talked a while back about how our approach to the Bible really leans into redemptive history in God's acts in history of redemption and God's plan for the world, not simply a life principles approach to the Bible. There are life principles in the Bible, but the Bible is so much more than that. So this series has really been meant to kind of summarize what God has called us to do and be and what our faith is for. Uh, This morning, we're talking about present hope in a future kingdom. And so we're summing up this and wrapping up this series this morning, talking about the kingdom of God and its certain future reality as in some ways a present hope that kind of is a reality in and of itself, even though it is coming in the future, at least coming in its fullness. And so as we read through Romans 8 and, and 2 Corinthians 4, I want you to, um, to think about these, these three points, which are part of our sermon this morning. Um, our church lives in the present hope of a future kingdom. Um, our church's uh, hope in a future kingdom shapes how we see hardship, and our church's... Um, uh, hope in a future kingdom shapes how we see our mission. The word there uses prolepsis. We'll get into that as we move through the sermon this morning. So uh, let's turn to Romans 8, 18, and then we'll jump to 2 Corinthians four thirteen. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 18, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, your word. May it strengthen and transform us to be conformed to the likeness and image of your Son, and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In his name we pray, amen. 
Well, one of the hardest lessons in my entire life, especially my adult life, has been the lesson of delayed gratification. It's the idea that you can go without something or suffer without something now because you'll have it in the future, and not just have it in the future, but have it better in the future. For example, you want to go on a family vacation, that's not going to happen. Maybe if you don't uh, cut back on eating out and going to the movies or something like that. And so you put a plan together you, and you, you deprive yourself for a short amount of time or maybe a long period of time so that you can have something down the road. Delayed gratification versus instant gratification. Of course, we're a culture of instant gratification. You suffer the loss of some temporary enjoyment and entertainment now so you can go on vacation later. Eating out's cool, but not as cool as the memories and the experience you'll make when your family goes to Tahiti, right? Now, for some people, delayed gratification comes natural. But for others, maybe less disciplined, it doesn't come as easy, especially if you grew up in sort of like a hand-to-mouth existence. You were worried about surviving just day to day. You didn't think much about the future because it was hard to get through each day, and so maybe people like that don't do so well with delayed gratification because the idea of planning for the future and having enough for today that you can think about the future maybe hasn't been a luxury. Um, and, and, and this makes sense because when most of life is suffering, it's hard to add on another layer of suffering to think about something that's a year down the road. Now, the reason it's hard to suppress the urge for instant gratification uh, is that instant gratification actually helps us survive. In Freudian psychoanalysis, it's known as the pleasure principle, which um, is the instinctual seeking of pleasure and avoidance of pain. And Eileen Strauss-Cohen, writing for Psychology Today, says, children seek immediate gratification, aiming to satisfy cravings such as hunger and thirst and seeking whatever they want in the moment to ease their discomfort. Pleasure is central to our survival. We need things like food and water and sex in order to survive and pass on our genetic material to the next generation. However, as we get older and mature, we must learn to tolerate the discomfort and delayed gratification if we're to have a greater purpose or goal in mind. She, she continues and says, studies show that delayed, delayed gratification is one of the most important uh, effective personal traits of successful people. People who learn how to manage their need to be satisfied in the moment thrive more in their careers, relationships, health, and finances than people who give in to it. Being able to delay satisfaction isn't the easiest skill to acquire, though. It involves feeling dissatisfied, which is why it seems impossible for people who haven't learned to control their impulses. Choosing to have something now might feel good, but making the effort to have discipline and manage your impulses can result in bigger and better rewards in the future. And that was a nice little lesson about instant versus delayed gratification. But I mention all of that because we're talking about present hope in a future kingdom. And one of the passages we read, Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are suffering hardships. 
And he essentially tells them that delayed gratification is the key to Christian perseverance. He tells them in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we don't lose heart because of this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the first thing I want us to see is our church lives in the present hope of a future kingdom. Our church lives in the present hope of a future kingdom. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we don't lose heart because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, Paul proleptically gives the people of God hope. And we use this term prolepsis to describe how God's kingdom is a future which we can in some way live right now. Prolepsis is the representation of a thing as existing before it actually does. Prolepsis is to live as if what God has promised about the future is a present reality. So I want you to remember this word, prolepsis. It's the idea that we are living as if what God has promised about the future is a present reality. Now to illustrate this, imagine if you are the only surviving heir of a billionaire who is about to die and leave your entire, his entire estate to you upon your 30th birthday. All right, and um, you may not have it all now, but living in that certain knowledge changes the way you live until you receive that inheritance. It would certainly mean that whatever financial challenges you face would have to be understood in the light of this absolute and certain inheritance that you know is coming. I mean, you've sat down with the lawyers, the, you know, they've, they've made you sign over the paperwork. It's coming, baby. Like, it's going to happen. And so whatever you experience, at least in any financial sense, is all understood in the light of, yep, just three more years left or two more years left, 18 months left, and I'm hitting that 30th birthday, and that money's coming. Or another way to think about it, prolepsis, the idea of present hope in a certain future, which changes your current and present life, would be maybe you're the, the heir, the only heir of a reigning monarch, and Maybe your father is a king. And when he dies, you'll receive the entire empire. And even though it hasn't happened yet, everyone knows it will, and they treat you accordingly. That's prolepsis, okay? And Paul uses this concept over and over and over again in Scripture. Prolepsis. He speaks proleptically about the age to come against the current evil age we live in now. There is an age coming where God will right all wrongs. Even though we're currently living in this wicked evil age, the future is breaking into the present all the time. We're getting closer and closer to a certain sure future that God has promised, and this informs much of what Paul says in his writings and certainly his theology. It's over and over and over again. We have a present hope in a future kingdom. Of course, one of the problems with prolepsis when it comes to the things God has promised us is we often don't put our hope in the things that God has told us to have certain knowledge and assurance about. 
We put our hope in transient things. We put our hope in things that are temporal. We put our hope in things that let us down. We often do just the opposite of what 2 Corinthians 4.17 says. We put our hope in the things that are seen, right? We're being disappointed all the time by things that are temporal and visible, even though these things are going to pass away. And so this is the challenge of the Christian, is to live proleptically, to live in a way with a present hope of something God has said is coming and will continue to come, to live that way in such a way that gives us hope. It's a hard thing to go through this life without much hope. And that's supposed to be the difference between Christians and people who are not Christians, is the hope that we have. Now, Alexander Schmiemann, he says this about the church's present hope in a future kingdom. He says, the church is the sacrament of the kingdom, and her life is the presence in this world of the world to come, which means that when, when the world looks at the church, when they see us, what they ought to see is a reality that will come one day in the world, but is not here yet, but is on display in us. If that makes sense. When people see us, they ought not to see the same disappointment and despair that they have, but a glimmer and a reflection of a future that God has promised, has promised will come, and is promising will come. The second thing I want us to see is our church's prolepsis shapes how we see hardship. The other verse I read was Romans 8.18, famous passage, maybe you've heard it before. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Now this may be one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible. You know, there, there are some really good ones, but this one... This one's hard to beat. This is one of those go-to passages of Scripture that essentially help us to have God's perspective about hardship. That whatever suffering you might be experiencing right now in this life pales in comparison to what God is going to reveal to us and for us and through us. In other words... Whatever's happening, however hard and, and horrible it is for the people of God, it really is nothing in comparison. It's instructive for us that Paul does not philosophize about suffering. He does not try to give a, a philosophical answer to suffering. That's kind of a modern thing we do. If, if a good God, then why suffering, Right? You know, if God's all-powerful and if God is all-merciful and compassionate, why does he allow X, Y, or Z? And Paul doesn't even try to explain that. He simply acknowledges that suffering exists, that sufferings are part and parcel of the present age we live in right now. There's no way of getting around it. In this fallen, broken age of sin and rebellion, suffering just comes with the territory. And he doesn't, that's, that's the only explanation he's, he gives except to say that in comparison to what God has in store for us, it's nothing. It doesn't feel like nothing. But in the grand scheme of things, if you can see with the eyes of God, it pales in comparison. 
And what Paul is saying is the coming kingdom will end all hardship. The coming kingdom will obliterate all pain. The coming kingdom, in the coming kingdom, God will put all things to rights. Everything that's wrong will be put to right in the coming kingdom. The coming kingdom will replace the sufferings of this present time with a reality that can only be described as glorious. What the kingdom is going to do to your present suffering or hardships or any struggles you've ever been through, in Paul's mind, is absolutely glorious. He says the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Your sufferings don't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And this word glory in Greek means the condition of being bright or shining or brightness or splendor or radiance. It's the idea that light, that, that light is going to obliterate the darkness. That part of this evil age we live in right now where there is suffering and hardship and sin and hatred and things like that is that it's a dark age in some ways, spiritually. We have all this technology. We're certainly not in the dark ages, right? Technologically, we're, we're advanced. We're more advanced than we've ever been. But spiritually, this current evil age is dark and the future glory that is now already breaking into the present through what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago and the church's ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit, that glory or brightness or light is breaking into the darkness. It's a dark, evil age, but the light of the future is already starting to shine. Just wrap your head around that imagery for a moment of light from the future shining into the present. And the people of God ought to reflect and radiate that glory right now in some way. Now you think, well, how, how do we do that? It's really simple. It's just hope. The hope that we have that God's word is true and sure and certain is that shining glory of God's promises in the here and now. I've said many times in the past that God's plan is not to scrap the project of earth because it's too far gone and start all over. Rather, what heaven and the kingdom of God is, is heaven, the life of heaven coming down to earth. Not God trashing the earth and taking us all up into heaven. It's where God is, where his will is performed perfectly. It's breaking into this world. So the life of heaven is going to be manifested in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what scripture says. A new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The life of heaven. And, and that started with Jesus. And it starts with the church when Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The project has already started. It's underway. <clears throat> I remember in 2008, my daughter and I went to New York City. And in 2001, of course, the Twin Towers were you know, destroyed by the planes going in and the, the acts of terrorism. And when we were there, the new, the Freedom Tower that's up now wasn't there at all. But what was there was the, the big massive hole in the ground, which was the foundation of the Twin Towers. They were doing all this excavation and they were putting up new construction. And so it was a project underway. And they had a picture of what the Freedom Tower and the new building would look like. And every 
every couple of weeks we would get back online and you could see the progress. It was like a daily update of the building project at, at the World Trade Center where the buildings had crashed. And if you just kept over months and years, like you could see the building slowly and they had like the, you know, the, 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 the rapid um, video where they show what's happened over the course of a few years and just a few minutes. Look, the kingdom of God is a project that has already begun in Jesus Christ and through the church and is going forward. And, and the church is this display and reflection of what God is going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. The love we have for one another, the forgiveness we show each other, the long-suffering, the sense of community, all of these things are fruit of a future kingdom that is coming on display to the world. That's what it's supposed to be. It's saying the darkness will one day be replaced by light, evil replaced by good, sin by righteousness, the ugliness of this life replaced by absolute beauty and splendor, and suffering replaced by, by glory. And this is supposed to give us hope. Have you lost some things this past year? You lost some relationships, maybe? Some loved ones in this past year? Maybe you've experienced the death of some hopes or dreams for your future? Do you yet hope? Are you still able to have hope? Tim Keller says, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Christianity is the only worldview that empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. This world and this world system is, is attempting to sit in its joy and hope that sorrows don't come. For the Christian, it's just the opposite, all right? The world sits in its joy, enjoying all of its pleasures right now, hoping that hardships won't come. But Christians lean into hardship because Christ himself embraced the hardship of the cross, came into this world to suffer. And so we sit in our suffering looking forward to the coming joy, looking forward to the age to come. I want you to remember this statement. The only way to suffer well is to be driven into the love of God. Because everybody suffers. You may not be experiencing acute pain and suffering and hardship at the moment, but you probably have and you will again. And the only way to suffer well is to be driven into the love of God. To know the promises of God. I mean, this book is a book of promises. It's a book about the promises that God makes to his people, and God wants us to hold him to his promises. And that's how we keep our hope alive. And then third and finally, our church's prolepsis shapes how we see our mission. 2 Corinthians 4.15, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Over the last month and a half, we've tried to unpack what our faith is for, what it means to be in the world but not of it, like we said at the beginning of the sermon. And we've used the metaphor 
for exile. So if you were here that for that first sermon, we were talking about um, seeking the welfare of the city and living as exiles, which is what the captives did, right? When the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 596 BC and carried the Jews off into Babylon, God gave them this command in Jeremiah 29, 11, that instead of resenting their new circumstances as captives in Babylon, they were to seek the welfare of the city. And that's what God has called us to do. And that describes our mission in this world. We recognize that in some ways, like the exiles who were in Babylon, recognizing that this is not the ideal circumstance or the way that our lives should be, God wants us to see ourselves on mission in this life and in this world until the coming kingdom arrives in all of its fullness. We are on mission for God. We are a contrast people demonstrating the ethics of the kingdom, the love of God, and the power of the redemption that we find in God's own very son, Jesus. This is to be radiated and reflected back to the world through our hope for the future and our love for one another. The church is made up of exiles on a mission to bless or extend grace to those around them. This has been a theme through this whole series The gifts God has given us, the way to offer them back to God in thanksgiving is to bless others with what we've been given. The love we received, we love others. The grace we've received, we show towards others. The forgiveness we've received, we forgive others with. So what we've received is reflected back out to the world, and in that way, it is an offering back up to God in this continuum. God blessing projected outward to others, thanksgiving back to God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the, what God wants us to do. And, but this idea of mission cover, colors every part of our lives. We're to love. Our biological and uh, faith families are schools of love teaching people to bless those around them. Remember that sermon, Blessing as a Family? Creative service, we have gifts to serve where God has placed us. We had a sermon where we talked about work. We talked about God blessing and using our gifts and abilities to bless the world around us and how in some profound way, much of the joy we receive in this life is through the activity and productivity of our labors, gifts, and abilities used for the benefit of others in service to the world for the glory of God. We talked about order. We established justice for the good of everyone with love and hospitality as its foundation, which means even the laws in our land are a part of God's good plan for this world, which is moving towards his kingdom, right? Law is good. It keeps order. We had a sermon where we talked about Sabbath as resistance, that on this day of the week, which we try to faithfully set aside time to come together with the people of God, we are resisting the anxiety of chaos. Part of what it means to be a contrast people means that we are not swept up in the 24-7 anxiety of chaos like the world is. We hit the pause button from our, our commercial activities, our work, our productivity. So as much of a blessing as productivity and work is, There has to be a moment where we cease and have some Sabbath rest. And that act of defiance and resistance to the world also makes us a contrast society. 
We talked about wisdom, Josh's sermon on wisdom. Wisdom is that knowledge that points to Jesus, who is the ultimate manifestation of wisdom. Wisdom is used to see into creation, create abundance, and serve others. Last week, I talked about wonder and how living in awe of God's creation and mercy keeps us from being self-absorbed and self-focused all the time. And wonder and beauty in many ways is an entrance, a door into the gospel because it draws the attention away from ourself and God's glorious and powerful, wonderful acts in history and creation and redemption. It keeps us from self-centeredness. It connects us emotionally to what God is doing in and around us. And then finally today, our final sermon, the church, what the church is to be, the church's hope to the world as present expectation of a future reality that is coming. The church is the body of Christ given for the life of the world, living in the present hope of a future kingdom. The church is the body of Christ given as a gift for the life of the world. The church maintains future hope of what is to come by living the kingdom right now. The church lives in the present hope of a future kingdom, and that is God's gift to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the kingdom that has come and is coming. We look forward, O oh God, to the day when the life of heaven fully populates the earth, and all that is wrong will be made right. Remind us, encourage us, empower us, O oh God, that we may not lose hope and fall into despair, but rather have our hearts focused on the future with a future orientation, the ability to delay our gratification, to look forward to what is to come as we endure current hardships and trials. Empowered, O oh God, by this knowledge, may we... Uh, see ourselves on mission for you. And Lord God, let that future hope encourage our hearts even this very moment as we struggle through various circumstances and trials. We pray all of these things on account of your son, Jesus. Amen.